welcome to First Incision, the podcast about preparing for the General Surgery Fellowship exam. I'm your host, Amanda Nikolic. Let's get started with our team timeout. Our patient today is the colorectal module from the General Surgical Curriculum. And our patient or topic we're going to be talking about continues on from our last episode on colorectal cancer introduction to go into the treatment of colon cancer. And like I mentioned, we're going to split up treatment into colon cancer and rectal cancer because these are both treated very differently. So when talking about the treatment of colon cancer, I like to think about it in three different groups. The first group is resectable non-metastatic disease. The second group is resectable metastatic disease. And the third group is non-resectable metastatic disease or palliative disease. I'm going to focus on each of these groups separately because the treatment is different. And the way that you determine these different groups is based, obviously, on adequate staging, which is really important. And we discussed that in the last episode on the introduction to colorectal cancer. Before I go into details about the management in these three different groups, the other thing I just wanted to talk about is the fact that there's a few different treatment options that we have, and these will options will recur throughout these three different treatment pathways that I'm going to talk about. So this includes chemotherapy, which can be given in a neoadjuvant setting, so prior to surgery, or in the adjuvant setting postoperatively. Radiotherapy does not have a role in colon cancer or high rectal cancers above the anterior peritoneal reflection. The next thing is surgery, and this is typically a segmental resection, but can include um, subtotal colectomy or a range of other surgical approaches depending on the presentation of the tumour. And then the third group to talk about is treatment of metastases. So this includes liver treatments and treatments of lung metastases. So I'm going to start by going into a bit more detail about the individual treatment options we have for colon cancer. This episode really is a summary of the treatment types and generally what we might do in those three individual presentations I talked about earlier. There's so many different permutations of the way that colon cancer might present and uh, different approaches, especially surgical approaches to these presentations. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail in that today, but we might discuss that a little bit more with a special guest when we get them on the program. So let's start by talking about the types of chemotherapy drugs or the regimes that are typically used in colon cancer. The main one that's used is Folfox chemotherapy. And this is a combination of 5-fluorouracil, leucovorin, and oxaliplatin. This is the standard of care for colon cancer. Another option, though, is fulfiri, which is folinic acid, 5-FU, and arenatecan, which is another option instead of fulfox. Alternatives include Zelox, which is oxaliplatin and capsidabine. And if patients are elderly, then another option is treating just with 5-FU alone. Mm-hmm. 
So the first group we're going to talk about today is resectable non-metastatic colon cancer. So these are patients who have a tumor at any part of the colon. And remember from our last episode that a colon cancer is a tumor located proximal to the rectum, but that sort of point of where the colon turns into the rectum is a little bit controversial, whether that's at the base of the sigmoid mesentery or whether that's where the tinea coli um, converge into one continuous outer longitudinal muscle layer. But also that high rectal cancers, so tumors above the anterior peritoneal reflection, are also treated as colon cancers. So we would also consider those tumors when we're talking about this particular treatment pathway. So these tumors are firstly diagnosed with a colonoscopy and biopsy, as we talked about in the last episode, and then staged with a CT chest abdopelvis. After determining that there is no evidence of any distal metastases, a assessment needs to be made of the primary tumor and whether or not it is a resectable cancer. So this involves whether or not you can remove that cancer with an operation and have on-block resection of the tumor. And that could be possible even if it's involving adjacent structures, as long as you're not going to be transecting through tumor and you're not going to perforate the cancer while you're getting it out, which changes the tumor to a T4 cancer. This assessment would usually be made based on the appearance on the endoscopy, as well as based on the colonoscopic findings. In terms of surgery for excision of a localized colon cancer, the principles of the resection are that you can remove the entire cancer with adequate proximal and distal resection margins, which are usually five centimeters. You want to also remove all of the draining lymph nodes in what's called a contiguous mesocolic resection. The established standard is that we should remove at least 12 lymph nodes to be considered to have done an adequate lymph adenectomy. And the way that this is achieved is with high ligation of the feeding vessels um, and complete mesocolic excision of the colon, affected colon, with its segmental blood supply, which also therefore should remove uh, the associated lymph nodes on block with the resection. The choice of whether or not you should do a laparoscopic or an open operation for a colon cancer depends on a few factors. So Tumor factors, including the location of the tumor, whether it's very bulky and whether you are suspicious preoperatively based on the imaging that there may be involvement of other organs. And these may be a reason to do an open operation. As well as patient factors should be considered. So whether or not the patient's able to tolerate prolonged pneumoperitoneum, a patient may have significant uh, pulmonary disease uh, or may have uh, labile blood pressure or cardiac problems, which may make it more difficult for them to tolerate pneumoperitoneum. Patients who are very obese, it can be more difficult to do um, laparoscopic surgery, but by the same token, you have a thicker and more bulky abdominal wall, which can make it more difficult to do an open operation. Uh, and obviously, the surgeon's experience and institution availability of laparoscopic equipment is also something to consider. There has been a few trials looking or comparing laparoscopic versus open surgery for colon cancer. And the ones to know about are the CLASSIC trial, uh, which was a UK trial with over 4,000 patients, the COLOR trial, as well as the ALCAS trial, which was an Australian trial. 
And all of these trials have demonstrated um, established equivalents of laparoscopic versus open for colon cancer with laparoscopic surgery having less blood loss, quicker return of bowel function, and a shorter length of stay in meta-analyses of these trials with equivalent cancer outcomes. However, they do have um, a longer operating time with laparoscopic and um, there can be uh, other complications, obviously, depending on those individual patient factors we've talked about. So really an assessment needs to be made about what's best and most appropriate for that individual patient. The choice of what operation to do depends really on the location of the tumor. So for example, if you have a sequel cancer or a proximal ascending colon cancer, these patients would undergo a right hemicolectomy, which involves taking the ileocolic artery and vein at their origin from the SMA, as well as the right colic and the right branch of the middle colic artery. If there's a tumor at the hepatic flexure, then these patients would often undergo an extended right hemicolectomy, which involves taking those same vessels as well as the middle colic artery. For a tumor in the transverse colon, the two main options talked about today include an extended right hemicolectomy and a subtotal colectomy. There is a, I guess, historical operation, which was the transverse colectomy, which is just the transverse colon taking the middle colic artery. However, this isn't really done anymore because it was not thought to take adequate lymph nodes um, as you get in a more extended resection. So an extended right hemicolectomy, as we've just talked about for a hepatic flexure tumor, takes the right colic artery, the ileocolic artery, and the middle colic artery. And the benefit here is that you're going to use the ileum to anastomose to the distal transverse colon. And the ileum is quite mobile, so this is um, technically relatively easy and a low tension anastomosis. The other option, which is a subtotal colectomy, involves removing the colon up to the junction between the descending colon and the sigmoid colon. And so you're going to take the ileocolic, the right colic, the middle colic, and the left colic pedicles. This is obviously quite an extensive resection. Um, So it may be indicated if there's synchronous cancers, both on the right and left sides, or if you have a patient with a a high-risk cancer syndrome or potentially one of those um, high-risk categories we talked about um, in the last episode on screening. Um, But again, this should be considered on a case-by-case basis. If you have a tumor at the splenic flexure or the distal, middle distal transverse colon, then the options include an extended right hemicolectomy, as we've mentioned, but also the left hemicolectomy or an extended left hemicolectomy. To be honest, I'm a little bit confused about what the difference is between a left hemicolectomy and an extended left hemicolectomy. There's different pictures and descriptions in the literature about what these actually involve. So we might ask our special guest when we have them on the program. When we do talk about operations for splenic flexure tumors, though, it's important to know that this is slightly controversial. Some surgeons say that you must do an extended right hemicolectomy um, in order to get sufficient lymph node harvest. But definitely there is emerging evidence that a segmental resection um, could be sufficient for these tumors. And there was a study published in Diseases of Colon and Rectum in 2020 um, from the Italian surgeons talking about segmental resection being safe and effective for 
tumors of the splenic flexure. Um, so definitely in a recent um, exam prep course that I was part of, um, they were talking about that becoming more and more standard of care. But then another tube with a country surgeon, they said that that would never be appropriate. So in the exam, I think it's important to acknowledge that there are two different views. You don't know what of the two your examiner may have, uh, but to know the evidence that exists for both options um, and having a good reason why you would make the decision that you would make. But from what I can tell, basically a left hemicolectomy is removing just the left colic artery and the bowel from the distal transverse colon to the uh, distal descending colon. But an extended left hemicolectomy involves taking the left colic artery as well as some of the sigmoid branches with the distal resection margin being at the recto sigmoid junction. But like I said, I'll get some more clarity around this point. Tumors in the sigmoid colon should be removed with an anterior resection which involves ligation of the IMA at its origin and typically the proximal resection margin being the distal descending colon and the distal resection margin being the recto-sigmoid junction. A high anterior resection is pretty much the same as a anterior resection from what I've been reading. And then we go into rectal resections, which we'll talk about in our next episode. Some other findings that may influence what resection you do include if there is a bowel obstruction, especially if there is a competent ileocecal valve, because in this case you have an effective closed loop obstruction and you'll potentially get uh, cecal ischemia and quite a lot of cecal distension. This can cause serosal tears in the cecum and you may therefore need to be removing the cecum along with the area of bowel with the tumour involved. And you may not want to be using the proximal bowel as part of your anastomosis. So in this case, you may consider a subtotal colectomy depending on where the tumour is. Before moving on any further, I just also wanted to comment on a few aspects of perioperative care for colon cancer treatment that are really important and also I think are very examinable. The first of these that I wanted to discuss is ERAS, which stands for Enhanced Recovery After Surgery Programs. ERAS is pretty standard practice across the units I've worked in around Australia, and basically it involves preoperative education of patients around what to expect, as well as nutritional optimization, early feeding after surgery, optimal post-operative analgesia, early mobilization, and early removal of drains if they have been placed. The other question that often comes up is around bowel preparation for colon cancer surgery. This is relatively controversial. It did go out of favor a few years ago, but now more and more surgeons are starting to use it again. There have been some recent studies that have suggested that bowel preparation preoperatively may lead to decreased wound infection rates. And there's some studies being done to determine whether it may have an effect on the anastomotic leak rate, but this is not yet established. With ERAS now, we give these patients uh, carbohydrate drinks right up to the morning of surgery and clear fluids up to two hours preoperatively so they don't get as dehydrated with the bowel preparation as well, which may be why there is less complications now or concerns about bowel prep than they were in the past. 
The other important things preoperatively to consider are an iron infusion, especially if patients present with anemia, because this has been demonstrated to improve their energy levels postoperatively, as well as reduce the blood transfusion rate required with their surgery, which as we know now has potential implications for long-term recurrence of their cancer. And the other thing is making sure if you're considering a stoma or you think there's any likelihood that patient may have a stoma, that you get stomal therapy counseling preoperatively as well as get the stomal therapist to mark an appropriate site for the ostomy. Moving on to talk about chemotherapy for resectable non-metastatic bowel cancer. It is pretty unusual for a patient to get neoadjuvant chemotherapy for a non-metastatic bowel cancer, Um, but all these patients should be discussed at an MDT, so there may be an individual situation that changes that, but the routine use of neoadjuvant chemotherapy in this setting is not really indicated. It can be used in an adjuvant setting, though, with the aims of eliminating micrometastatic disease to reduce their risk of recurrence and improve their survival. And the indications for adjuvant chemotherapy in colon cancer are stage 3 colon cancers. So these are T1 to 3 tumors with N1 or 2. So if you find that they have nodal involvement on your resection specimen. And these patients have a five-year survival of 49%, which improves to 64% with adjuvant chemotherapy. And like I mentioned earlier, usually Folfox is the standard of chemotherapy of choice, um, with Folfiri another option. It's a little controversial, but some stage two colon cancer patients may also benefit from adjuvant chemotherapy, and this should be discussed at an MDT Patients who may be considered for adjuvant chemotherapy in the setting of stage 2 disease are patients who have high risk factors, so poorly differentiated tumors, mucinous or medullary subtypes, evidence of lymphatic or vascular invasion, tumor budding, bulky tumors that may be T3 or T4, so invading through the subserosa or invading through the visceral peritoneum or a perforated cancer. The other thing just to be aware of, which is not yet being used in routine practice, but is definitely being researched, is the concept of circulating tumor DNA. So there's two trials which are currently recruiting um, the Dynamic 2 and Dynamic 3 studies, which are looking at giving patients who have evidence of circulating tumor DNA postoperatively chemotherapy and comparing um, outcomes between those that are given chemotherapy and not given chemotherapy. So that's something that we may see more about in the future um, and depending on when your sitting exam may be relevant for you to know about. So the next group we're going to talk about is resectable metastatic disease. So these are patients who present with a colon primary, but with liver or lung metastases that are resectable. And the resectability of liver or lung metastases, I'm going to leave to another episode. I think we'll go more into colorectal liver metastases when we do hepatobiliary. Um, But the general considerations about whether a colorectal liver metastases is resectable or not 
depends on how many metastases there are, whether or not they are large or small, whether they're in both lobes of the liver and the function of the underlying liver with the consideration of ensuring that enough functional liver remnant is left behind so that patient doesn't go into fulminant liver failure. For these patients, it's a little bit nuanced. In my initial recording of this section for the podcast, I said that these patients should be offered upfront neoadjuvant chemotherapy, which is, I think, still a viable option. But after discussion with one of the colorectal surgeons at my institute, who hopefully will be coming onto the program for a guest episode, I have changed this recording to talk about upfront surgery for this group. The argument that he put forward is that chemotherapy in colon cancer is not curative. So if you have resectable disease and therefore surgically curable disease, you could consider upfront resection of the colon and liver metastases followed by adjuvant chemotherapy. I think the nuances around this management plan would need to be discussed at an MDT. I guess one argument to giving upfront chemo is that you have an opportunity to assess biological response to treatment. But another consideration is obviously if a patient presents with a symptomatic primary, such as someone who presents with obstruction or bleeding um, or perforation that they obviously need that dealt with prior to treating with chemotherapy. For patients who don't have an upfront resection and have neoadjuvant chemotherapy. This would typically consist of Folfox or Folfiri treatment for up to six months. After they've completed their neoadjuvant chemotherapy, the patient can then go on to have a resection of their primary and also, if possible, resection of their liver or lung metastases. Something that's talked about a lot is whether to do a liver first or a colon first approach. I don't think the data is really in yet on which of these is the preferred option, and that really needs to be decided on a case-by-case basis. But the options include resecting the colon, letting the patient recover, and then organizing a liver resection, doing the liver first, waiting for the patient to recover, and then resecting the primary. Or, for example, in a small liver metastases, like a small left-sided metastases where the patient's not going to be undergoing a major hepatic resection, sometimes the operations on the bowel and the liver can be done concurrently. But again, this is really an individual assessment based on that patient um, and discussion at the MDT. So like I mentioned, surgery for the liver I'll go into in a bit more detail when we're doing the hepatobiliary topic. But there's no clear or single guideline on which patients have resectable liver metastases. So a surgeon who has an interest in liver metastases should be consulted to see whether or not that patient has resectable disease. Um, There is evidence that patients who have resectable liver metastases and undergo a resection have improved overall survival and progression-free survival. Um, But this is not based on randomized controlled data. It's mostly based on retrospective data which is just something to be aware of. In terms of pulmonary mets, for patients with resectable pulmonary metastases, resection of those metastases can help improve local-regional control, but whether or not it improves overall survival is not yet clear, and most patients who develop lung metastases have unresectable disease. The PULMIC trial 
pulmonary metastatectomy versus continued active monitoring in colorectal cancer was a randomized control trial that tried to answer the question about whether lung metastatectomy was indicated and provided a benefit in colorectal cancer. However, this study unfortunately was stopped early because of poor recruitment um, and there was only 65 patients who were randomized. But based on that data, the belief was that the five-year survival benefit was about 35% with a survival of 40% at five years after metastatectomy compared with less than 5% in the controls. So this is something that I guess is supporting the use of metastatectomy for pulmonary metastases in colorectal cancer. So the last group to talk about today is unresectable colorectal cancer. So these are patients with metastatic disease that is unresectable. And these patients are going to go down a palliative treatment pathway. 25% of patients who present with colorectal cancer will have metastases at diagnosis. And 70 to 90% of these will have unresectable metastatic disease. Patients with unresectable disease need early chemotherapy and targeted treatments, which will provide an improved overall survival, quality of life, and can help to downstage tumors. So the key here is obviously discussion at an MDT, and an individualized treatment plan needs to be made for these patients, which takes into account the patient's comorbidities, the disease distribution, and also the patient's wishes. So options include chemotherapy, targeted treatments, liver treatments, and resection. So palliative chemotherapy, there's multiple different drug options which can be used. Um, Obviously, the drugs that we've talked about, the Folfox and Folfiri type drugs can be used in metastatic disease. And in young patients, you may pursue those aggressive treatments. But in general, um, a variety of different drugs are used and often uh, changed as patients progress on each different drug class. The first line treatment usually used is 5-FU and oxaliplatin, but patients can also have 5-FU and leucovorin or Folfox and Folfury, as I've mentioned. The other treatment options include biologic agents. So these include anti-VEGF and anti-EGFR therapies. And these are often combined with chemotherapy treatments. Um, So this includes bevacizumab and cetuximab. The important things to know about these drugs is that bevacizumab, or that anti-VEGF drug, which basically inhibits the angiogenesis or um, vascular growth that feeds the tumor um, is also called Avastin. You might have heard of it called Avastin. And this is high risk in patients who have not had their primary tumor resected as it's associated with high risks of bowel perforation. Um, And there was a question in the Viva exam a few years ago where a patient was treated with um, Avastin and chemotherapy and came in with a fever and was um, basically referred to you for the fever asking to take out the port and you had to recognize that actually they had abdominal pain and had evidence of a bowel perforation and that was the uh, key point of that oral exam. And the things to know about cetuximab, which is the anti-epidermal growth factor receptor therapy. Um, Another drug in the same class is panitumumab, just in case you were wondering how many letters they could put into the name of a MAB drug. Um, So basically, this 
anti-EGFR therapy treatment is indicated in patients with KRAS wild type, so non-mutated KRAS. Um, and this has been, in this group of patients, has been de- demonstrated to improve overall survival and progression-free survival. So if we think back to our genetic pathways in colorectal cancer, a KRAS mutation is common in the conventional pathway or the chromosomal instability pathway, but usually is not present in the serrated pathway and may or may not be present in the microsatellite instability pathway. So that's why it's important to check for a KRAS mutation if you have metastatic bowel cancer to see whether or not that patient may qualify for anti-EGFR treatments. So for patients with metastatic disease, the other treatment options include liver treatments such as radiofrequency ablation or embolization of liver metastases. And this may be indicated in patients who have limited disease in the liver but that's not resectable to potentially give them an opportunity to have a break from systemic therapy and have a meaningful period of relapse or disease-free survival. So that's always an option. And the last thing to talk about is whether or not you should be resecting the primary tumor. Um, And this question basically depends on whether the patient is symptomatic or asymptomatic. The routine palliative resection of an asymptomatic primary bowel cancer in patients who have unresectable metastatic disease is pretty controversial and there's no real trials or evidence to guide our management in these patients. It should be based on a discussion at the MDT and consideration should be given to the volume of their metastatic disease how stenosing the lesion is. If it looks like it's probably going to progress and stenose soon, then you may consider a local resection to prevent obstruction and also the um, comorbidities of the patient and how fit they are potentially for a resection. In patients with an asymptomatic primary um, and sort of good medium to long-term potential disease control with systemic treatments, then they may benefit from a a local resection because that tumor may progress and cause symptoms. So if they have, um, you know, a good response to initial therapy, the oncologist may be asking you to resect the primary. The difference is obviously in the group with symptomatic tumor. So a tumor that's obstructing, or it could also be bleeding, causing bowel, um, partial obstruction and pain, or could have perforated. Um, These patients, it's pretty clear that something needs to be done for that primary. And this can be considered a symptomatic operation to provide an improved quality of life for these patients. The other option in an obstructing cancer is a stent. Although stenting is controversial as a bridge to surgery and it's probably not recommended in that situation, in the palliative setting, a stent is a reasonable option and it may improve that patient's quality of life, avoid the potential complications of a major cancer resection, enable faster return to systemic treatments um, and can give them long-term sort of palliation of a nearly obstructing or obstructing tumour. So that's another option to consider in that group. So that's all from me today about the treatment of colon cancer. Our next episode, we'll be talking about rectal cancer and what's different about the treatment of rectal cancer. 
Before I go, I just wanted to shout out to the few people I met from Queensland on the recent Moses course. I'm really glad to hear that there are some people getting some value out of this podcast. I'm really enjoying making it and I wish you the best of luck on your upcoming exams. As usual, remember to rate, review and subscribe wherever it is that you listen to podcasts so that other people are able to find the podcast. It's time to close up. Thanks for listening to First Incision. If you have any comments or feedback, send us a message at firstincisionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at First Incision. Happy studying!